Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, my name is Kelly Brownell, and I'm the director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University. I'm delighted to welcome you to this podcast and encourage you to visit our website at www.yaleruddcenter.org to be exposed to a variety of resources, uh, not the least of which is a list of the other excellent people we've recorded podcasts with. I'm delighted today to welcome a Yale colleague, James Gustav Speth, who is the Carl Knobloch Dean of the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies and the Sarah Schallenberger Brown Professor in the practice of environmental policy at Yale. Uh, he, uh, Dean Speth, has a bachelor's degree from Yale, a master's degree from Oxford, and his JD degree from Yale. Assumed his current position as dean in 1999. From 1993 to 1999, Dean Speth served as administrator of the United Nations Development Program and chair of the UN Development Group. Prior to that, he was founder and president of the World Resources Institute, professor of law at Georgetown, chairman of the U.S. Council on Environmental Quality, and senior attorney and co-founder of the Natural Resources Defense Council. Uh, he's been honored for his work in many ways, has written influential books, including, including two recent ones, one called The Bridge at the End of the World, Capitalism, the Environment, and Crossing from Crisis to Sustainability, and another book called Red Sky at Morning, America and the Crisis of the Global Environment. So welcome, Gus. I'm delighted to have you here, and congratulations for having the marvelous impact you have. Thank you, Kelly. It's good to be here. So let's talk um, a little broadly about the environment in general first and then bring it around to the food arena if we can. Uh, how terribly in crisis are we with the environment, and what has the picture gone from and to? And I know in the talk you just gave at the Rudd Center, you discussed how um, global growth and global uh, pollution and various things like that have tracked each other. So could, would, it, would it be possible to paint a quick picture of how serious a state we're in? Well, you, you know, most it looks pretty good outside most of the time. Uh, in our cities and in the countryside, and it's easy to uh, forget how serious the problems really are. We've taken some of the rough edges off of environmental damage, but the real problems remain. And if you look at the long-term trends, what you see is that we're doing a very poor job uh, of dealing with them, very poor. Uh, at this point, uh, despite uh, decades of, of effort, uh, we're still... Uh, losing an acre a second uh, of tropical forests in the world. Uh, we have eliminated and destroyed about half of the temperate forest and half the tropical forest. Uh, a big part of the casualty there has been an unprecedented loss of species, uh, now estimated to be a thousand times the rate uh, that species normally uh, go extinct. Uh, in the oceans, uh, we've eliminated probably 90% of the large predator fish uh, in the oceans. And about 75% of our fisheries are either fished to, to capacity or, or overfished. Uh, and the biggest issue of all, of course, is the uh, climate issue. Uh, we've raised the carbon dioxide concentration of the Earth's atmosphere, for example, by over a third now and started in earnest the process of of uh, global warming and, and climate disruption. Everywhere we look now, the Earth's uh, ice fields are melting. 
And this uh, very modest uh, warming of the planet is, is causing huge consequences, including the uh, loss of tremendous uh, amounts of uh, ice uh, in the Arctic uh, and the breaking off of huge uh, ice uh, shelves uh, in Antarctica and in the Arctic and northern Greenland. Uh, we really are transforming the face of our, of our planet uh, today. Uh, we're using about half of the accessible runoff of water on the planet, uh, taking about half of the water out of our, out of our rivers and uh, lakes uh, and, uh, and polluting much of, uh, of the rest. A lot of the world's rivers, uh, uh, including, uh, of course, the Colorado, uh, don't get to the ocean uh, in, the, in the dry season. Uh, there's a huge problem of toxic chemicals, despite decades of effort to try to do something about these chemicals. Most of them in the United States have never really been tested for all their uh, varieties of toxicity and, and human impact. Uh, finally, the Europeans have gotten around to establishing a commitment to do that, but we're still behind. Uh, and meanwhile, the discharge of all types of toxics, including these gender-bender chemicals, uh, into the environment uh, continue. Uh, and so, you know, Kelly, I could go on, but I, I, I just uh, think I've tried to give a sense of some of the, the big picture uh, trends that, that are going on and how serious uh, they are to human welfare over the long term. Here at home in the U.S., uh, things continue to be uh, very serious. About a third of Americans live in counties that don't meet the EPA air quality standards. Uh, half of our lakes and a third of our streams don't meet the EPA water standards. Uh, the, we're losing about 6,000 acres a day of open space in the United States. We're building these mountains around our cities because the amount of solid waste per capita uh, continues to climb. It's gone up over 33% since Earth Day in 1970. That's per capita garbage production uh, in our country. And uh, part of this, as you say, is, uh, is driven by, uh, by our sort of growth at all cost uh, mentality and, and, uh, we, we, and our sort of runaway consumerism. Uh, we, we have uh, so much stuff now that despite the fact that our homes are 50% bigger and, uh, and the lots that they sit on are more than 50% bigger. Uh, we have so much stuff that we can't take care of it all within our own boundaries. And so we've created over the past couple of decades a self-storage industry in our country. And it's now so large that uh, if the square footage of our self-storage industry would cover the entire island of Manhattan and the city of San Francisco combined. Those are breathtaking statistics, breathtaking in a negative way, of course. And, you know, in a period of about three minutes, you've painted a picture of a stunning impact of <clears throat> modern life on, on the planet. Um, I've heard you talk about what the anticipated uh, trend of this will be, even if there's no continued growth, even if we don't add to the world's population, even if the, we're not using up more resources and things like that. But when you factor in growth, then it becomes an even more distressing picture. Could you explain that, if you wouldn't mind? Well, we just start with the basic idea that the, you know, the problem at the core of the environmental issue is our economic activity. The economy 
consumes vast amounts of renewable and non-renewable resources. Uh, it occupies the land, and it spews out truly vast amounts of waste products uh, into the environment. And this um, has now reached the point that, um, that all we have to do, and I say this advisedly, all we have to do to ruin the planet for our children and grandchildren is keep doing exactly what we're doing today. Uh, just keep emitting climate-changing gases at the same rate that we emit them today. Uh, continue to uh, impoverish productive ecosystems at the rate that we are now doing it. Uh, continue to release toxic chemicals at current rates. And in the latter part of this century, we'll have a, a different planet. Uh, and I would say it would be a ruined planet, not one that one would want to wish on one's children uh, and grandchildren. But that's without any growth in, in population or, or, or economic activity. It just assumes everything stays the same. But of course, that's not going to happen. We know that the world economy and our economy, despite this temporary uh, recession, uh, is growing phenomenally. Uh, you know, at the current rates of growth over the past uh, five or six years, uh, the world economy would double in size in about um, 15 years or 15 to 17 uh, years. So under current projections, uh, the world economy is easily double or quadru easily quadruple in size by, by mid-century. And uh, it, so what this means is that there's just enormous potential built into this uh, into our economic system for dramatic increases in, in, in impacts along this, this whole chain of environmental concerns at the very time when we should be reducing those impacts rather than allow, allowing them to expand and grow along with economic activity. I'd like to ask you in a minute what governments and non-government organizations are doing about these issues and whether it's going to be enough. But first, let me ask a food question. Um, to what extent are modern food patterns and consumption of food a player in this environmental picture? Well, centrally uh, important in, in so many different ways. Uh, we know that the simple, that, you know, the, the most direct impacts, uh, of course, are the, uh, the, the, uh, what if, uh, the spread of agricultural lands uh, into forested and other areas, the vast consumption of fertilizers and pesticides and all of their environmental consequences. But it's really um, much bigger than that. Uh, uh, agriculture is the biggest uh, user of water. Uh, when I mentioned a moment ago about uh, draining uh, half the water out of our rivers, uh, most of that's for agriculture. And uh, the products that we have at our table and, and the, in our cotton clothes and are, all have uh, tremendous uh, embodied water in them. Uh, the amount of water that it takes to produce a cup of coffee or, or a t-shirt uh, is, is a staggeringly uh, large amount surprisingly large amounts, certainly, uh, of water, for example. And then there's the implicit or embodied energy uh, in food. Um, and, you know, I, I was, one study that has been done that a nice-sized uh, steak uh, has enough energy, uh, required enough energy to produce it and get it to your table, uh, um, uh, much more than the, the cooking, actually, but that contributes uh, also. Uh, that uh, would be the same as, um, as leaving the lights on in your house and going out and, and driving around in your car for 30 minutes. Uh, 
So there's a huge energy consumption in our food supply. And of course, within that food supply, we are enormously uh, wasteful uh, at, at all stages. The, the so-called bycatch in the ocean fisheries, the, the total amount of the of, of fish, uh, oceanic you know, life that's caught up and entrained in, in nets and thrown away and wasted uh, to get you know, those special fish that we love to eat uh, is, is enormous. Uh, the amount of protein that's used to grow shrimp in, in shrimp farms, for example, is enormous. So you have this, uh, this, this sector that we call agriculture, uh, which from an environmental point of view today is a disaster. I'm happy we're having the opportunity to have this discussion because it seems to me that environmental groups and the groups interested in food and nutrition ultimately have a lot in common but don't talk to each other very much at the moment. And that that might be a, a nice uh, bridge to gap and a nice connection to make between those two worlds. You know, as you were talking about <clears throat> the uh, energy required to produce food, I was reminded of a report that, was, that came out recently from the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations that talked about the uh, high spike in food prices that's happened around the world recently. And a variety of reasons are pushing that, high energy costs, um, corn being used for biofuels rather than for food, and a number of other things. But one of the things they mentioned was the increased consumption of meat in China and the, the, the uh, how, how eating meat has become a desirable enterprise in China and the marketing that's gone on around that. And so the meat consumption has gone up through the roof, essentially, from what it was before. And given the size of the population, all the energy costs that are woven into the production of meat then get expressed in this desire for meat there. And uh, there's talk about how other countries want to become like the United States. And there are a lot of ways they may become like the United States and have signs of doing that, but it could have pretty disastrous consequences. So I found that an interesting statistic. So let me ask the following question. Given the dire state of the in environment now, what are, what are governments, the U.S. government, uh, other governments around the world, organized world bodies like the United Nations and non-government organizations doing about this, and is it enough? Well, I think our governments have participated in one of the great failures of, of all time um, in terms of not addressing these issues that, that I've been talking about and that you've been working on at, at the Rudd Center. Um, you know, we just to go back to the food issue a minute, I was thinking when you were talking that the, um, you know, we're, the Japanese have had historically a sort of healthy, uh, a healthy diet compared with, with many people, peoples. Uh, but um, when there's immigration to the United States and they start the, with the American uh, lifestyle, uh, their health degenerates just like the rest of ours uh, has. And uh, another point is that I was asked recently to give some advice on what I thought people ought to do uh, to deal with the climate issue. And of course, you know, many people say change, change the light bulbs, uh, uh, buy a hybrid vehicle, uh, and those things turn out to be quite important. But even more important, uh, I, my advice was to cut your meat consumption in half. Uh, that would have a huge environmental uh, consequence uh, and, and, and climate protection. 
consequence. You know, so I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt, but one thing that uh, we see around the world is basically every country in the world is showing increasing prevalence of obesity. And larger people, of course, are consuming more calories. And just so if something like the obesity problem could be brought under control, uh, the amount of energy that would be saved for something like that could be absolutely enormous. And that that's driven in, to some extent by the very same consumerism that you're talking about affecting the environment. Absolutely. Uh, in terms of governmental response, um, you know, in a way, this is our failure. Uh, we, we have governments to protect us uh, and uh, to act on behalf of the of the powerless, uh, the consumer, uh, to, uh, the environment, to, to counterbalance uh, the corporate pressures to, to sell and uh, ever more and produce ever more. And, and yet, uh, in the biggest sense, that's we have failed to use government uh, uh, to do that. And uh, we are have a very difficult time uh, now uh, sort of recapturing uh, control of government from the very people who should be regulated by government, who are now so much in, in the driver's seat uh, uh, in, our, in our government. Um, you know, I, uh, I think that we've recognized for a long time that corporations were the principal economic actors in our, in our system, but, uh, you know, I, I think we've reached the point now where the corporations are the principal political actors uh, in our system, uh, wielding uh, great power uh, and great control over uh, what happens. So uh, part of the struggle to protect the environment and to protect consumers and to deal with the food-related issues that we've been talking about has got to be an effort to revitalize our politics. And I think that we made a good start uh, in our recent uh, presidential election. But it's really just the beginning because the same lobbyists are in Washington, the same money is in politics, you know, and the same power is there to continue to be uh, deployed to prevent the kind of government action that we have every right to expect uh, but don't get. And right now in our country, uh, you know, President Obama is going to be taking over a government that has been severely depleted of its capacities to protect consumers and to protect environment and protect uh, our children. Uh, every agency has, has been uh, severely uh, diminished in its capacities. They've been underfunded and understaffed and undersupported and underattended. And a lot of good people have left. Others have not been replaced when they retired. Uh, so we have a, things like a Social Security Administration that can't process disability claims before the people die, uh, an environmental agency that can't protect the environment, a Consumer Product Safety Commission that can't protect us from dangerous imports, Food and Drug Administration that can't get around to really examining new pharmaceuticals adequately, uh, and on and on throughout uh, government, that those fundamental protections. So one of the new president's principal objectives, I think, is going to have to be um, just rebuilding these basic functions of government. The 
the parallels with the, the food arena are really striking in this case. Uh, the depletion of the resources of government agencies, the influence of them by business interests and the like are really pretty um, uh, impressive. Um, so, for example, the, uh, there's, there's a lot of discussion about the revolving door between business and, and key agencies like the U.S. Department of Agriculture, where it's quite common for the head of the USDA to be somebody who came right from the food industry. And then for those individuals to leave the USDA, go right back into the industry, and, and you have the revolving door. Um, there was a while when, um, I don't know if it was it's still the case, but uh, a while when the Bush administration uh, reportedly was putting pressure on trade associations to hire people coming out of the trade associations with the expectation that if they did that, they would be given favorable treatment within the administration. So as an example, the, the person who heads the main trade association for the soft drink industry, the American Beverage Association, was a Bush appointee or was in the Bush administration in Homeland Security and then came out and now runs the trade association. So this revolving door uh, is a real issue in the nutrition arena and the heavy influence of business on government agencies that are relevant to nutrition uh, has been very clear for years, and it sounds like the the over the, the similarity with the environmental areas is quite remarkable. Yeah, I think it is. Uh, you know, we're moving into a period uh, of transition in, in government. Uh, during the Clinton administration, I was responsible for the part of the Clinton transition uh, you know, back in 1992 uh, that um, uh, looked at, um, at the environment and energy and agriculture. Uh, and one day I got a call from a Southern senator who said to me, he said, uh, you know, Gus, uh, you're running this transition, but you don't have any, any brawlers on your transition team. And I, I said, Senator, uh, I've got some pretty tough characters here working on these issues. Uh, what do you mean, no, no brawlers? He said, son, you don't understand me. I'm talking about chickens. <laughs> broilers. <laughs> you don't have any broilers on your transition team. I said, well, you're right. Uh, and uh, I was basically uh, uh, told to add uh, representatives of the chicken industry on my transition team. And, of course, that opened the door. And pretty soon we had the, uh, the, the, the pork uh, industry and the beef industry and the cotton growers and the wheat growers, and they were all represented on our agricultural uh, transition team. I think we actually ended up doing a decent job, but it just does show you uh, the, uh, the way that these associations uh, in particular, um, you know, throw their weight around uh, in Washington and, and, and continue to be uh, enormously, enormously powerful. So if we're moving into a period where we're going to change Washington, we're going to have to change the way that that power is allocated uh, in the city and 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 move away from the tremendous power of of money and and uh, and access in, in this system. It's interesting how this gets perceived around the world. Uh, when I travel to other countries, uh, it's very often the case that people are very antagonistic toward the U.S. government and feeling that it is blocking progress around the world, that the U.S. bullies other countries into uh, towing the, the line that helps industry interests be protected. 
The perception is that the U.S. defends the status quo, doesn't recognize the seriousness of these problems, and bends almost entirely to government, I mean, to business interests. Now, whether that perception is justified or not, you know, everybody will have a different opinion on that. But I was wondering about the perceptions around the world about the U.S. government's role in environmental issues. Well, it's very similar to, to what you described, Kelly. I would say it's the same. Uh, the, um, and, of course, the poster child for that is, is our position on, on the climate issue, uh, where the administration has been the, by far the, the leading block to concerted international action to protect us from this disastrous process of climate change. Uh, Tony Blair, who um, was uh, very close to President Bush and, and who uh, supported President Bush in Iraq, as we all know, uh, tried very hard to transfer that support uh, into action on President Bush's part to join him uh, in the climate fight and, and could not succeed. So I think the, uh, there's a pattern in our area of uh, inattention. Uh, we do not belong uh, to the uh, Convention on Biodiversity. Uh, we have not signed the Kyoto Protocol to deal with the, with the climate issue. Uh, we have not agreed to the uh, international treaty, the so-called Stockholm Treaty, uh, dealing with uh, toxic chemicals in the international environment. I don't think to this day we've actually signed the Law of the Sea, uh, which deals with fisheries issues, or at least ra not ratified it, uh, and so on. Uh, you know, the Senate is a graveyard uh, of international agreements uh, that the world is going forward with, but the U.S. has not participated in. So this sort of arrogance on the part of, of our government, uh, this, uh, you know, the fact that we think we can go it alone that we're somehow so large that we're exceptional and don't need to participate with other countries in international agreements is has really been a, a tragedy in the environmental area, as in, in many others. We haven't signed the Convention on the Rights of the Child. We haven't signed the Convention against uh, all forms of discrimination against women. Uh, we haven't signed the International Court uh, Agreement or, or the... Um, uh, the ag agreement on uh, landmines. This is—it's just a pattern of uh, of what has to be called uh, national or at least governmental arrogance, uh, and and it's it's got to change if we're going to expect other countries to cooperate with us. It sounds like on the part of the U.S. there's almost a double—not almost, but a double whammy of sorts—in that. I've heard you cite numbers about how much of the global pollution the U.S. is is contributing. So on one hand, we're contributing in a disproportionate way, and I'd be curious about some numbers on that, to the environmental damage that's happening and at the same time blocking progress. Yeah, it is a double whammy. I, I think the, the big issue, of course, is the climate issue. We are the now number two. We've just been passed uh, by China in terms of day-to-day uh, -day emissions of greenhouse gases. But... Um, but our big contribution has, has been over a long period of time, much longer than China's, to the re result that we are now have contributed about a third of the total buildup of greenhouse gases uh, in the atmosphere, certainly 30%. And 
and and this, um, in other words, we you know we more used up more than our share of the assimilative capacity of the atmosphere, and uh, and yet we uh, we are just beginning to face the reality that we've got to dramatically reduce our fossil fuel uh, use and our release of, of these greenhouse gases. Uh, and, uh, and in fact, you know, we haven't faced it yet. We haven't done the things that, that we need to do domestically or internationally. I'd love to get your thoughts on what can be done about this issue. And one of the things that I've heard you talk about is um, people and companies and the government paying the real cost of things. Um, can you explain that concept and what that means and how that might be related to the environmental issue? Well, economists have what they call market failure, and, and they acknowledge that as much as they love the market, uh, they acknowledge that the market can fail, and it fails most uh, regularly and, uh, and on a grand scale uh, when polluters, uh, to take one group, uh, aren't made to pay the cost to society of their pollution. This is a cost of production. If it were a labor cost or a materials cost, the company would have to pay. But if it's pollution damage uh, emitted by the firm, the company does not have to pay in an unregulated market. Uh, and that's market failure. Well, we have market failure on a grand scale. Um, and uh, we have companies whose, uh, you know, basically profit margins uh, depend on these externalities, these, uh, these costs that are external uh, to the firm. And they fight tooth and nail uh, against government action, which would make them pay, the so-called polluter pays principle. And uh, as a result, the, the prices in the marketplace are artificially low. The more environmental damage is not compensated, uh, is not paid by the company, the more artificially low uh, the price is, the more environmental damage, uh, the less the, 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 there's been, you know, the real freight is, is being paid uh, by the companies. And so we, what we have are environmentally dishonest prices uh, where the real cost of production are, are not in the prices that we pay. So we overconsume uh, tremendously products that are environmentally destructive, and, uh, and, and, you know, that's a root uh, of the problem. Uh, another root of the problem is our sort of uh, uh, hyperventilating uh, lifestyles and this overriding uh, consumption of uh, goods and services and the, the way that uh, so much of our society is, is governed by the growth imperative, the imperative to keep the economy uh, expanding uh, at all costs. Uh, even though there's, you know, precious little evidence that we've used this growth dividend in the past to meet our social needs or to deal with the environmental consequences uh, of the growth itself. This point you make about not paying for the real cost of products, boy, does that apply to food, doesn't it? If you think yeah. about uh, an issue like um, subsidies to the corn farmers and how that artificially suppresses the price of corn, um, how the, the pollution that takes place from raising farm animals that contributes directly to global warming, these things are all being passed off to other parties 
or not being absorbed by the economy at all, um, at least in terms of what people pay for the products. And so if people paid the real cost of food and that cost took into account the energy that it took to, to make the hamburger or to, to produce the Cheeto or to create the Coca-Cola or whatever it was, looked at the environmental damage that was created along the way, the cost of food would be much, much higher than it is now. I suspect, and that might actually help bring food consumption into line with what people actually need biologically. Does that make sense? No, it makes very good sense, and it also, uh, you know, a lot of our uh, food prices are dramatically affected by the subsidies, that, and uh, and so we have this weird thing, right, where we have a we're being we get we're being given and taught a food pyramid. Uh, in which uh, some things are at the bottom and we should eat them in abundance, and some things are at the top and should be uh, consumed more as delicacies. And, uh, and, and then you compare the food pyramid that we're told to follow with the subsidy pyramid uh, that's created by, by government, and you find that you know, the big subsidies are going into the very things that we're told not to consume much of. Uh, and and so you know basically we're you know uh, one pair one subs the subsidy pyramid is is undermining the good food pyramid, and people have begun talking about the externalities of that process in terms of nutrition and health, but there's a very strong environmental consequence of that whole subsidy process and our overconsumption of food. I mean it's remarkable how closely the it seems to me the diet nutrition and the environmental histories have been and some of the overlapping issues that occur. So let's talk about, about what might be done. Um, I've heard you talk about the uh, environmental non-government organizations uh, having decided strategically along the way to work within the system. And uh, you've questioned the, the wisdom of that and whether working outside the system might be important at some point. How do we address these issues? Well, I, I think that uh, working within the system, that is, uh, is not going to succeed when what you really need to do is change the system itself. And uh, what do I mean by that? Well, for example, uh, you know, environmental groups have, um, have, uh, have basically um, not sought to, uh, to challenge uh, this, uh, our growth fetish, uh, have not sought to convince people that New lifestyles uh, uh, are necessary, uh, and uh, have not really uh, have preferred to work with uh, corporations uh, rather than uh, try to uh, challenge the domination of, of corporations uh, in our politics. Um, so we, you know, we we need to think about what's really driving the problem because we've had this forty-year experiment. Uh, in working within the system, uh, in trying to uh, get Congress to do the right thing, to get legislatures to act, to turn to the courts and to turn to the public with public education measures. And what we see looking back is despite the fact that the, we've gotten better and better at these things and the environmental community has gotten stronger and stronger, we're still losing ground and uh, badly to the point that we just keep doing what we're doing today, we're going to lose the planet. And uh, so you have to say, well, there's something wrong with this picture. There's a paradox here. And because uh, we get stronger and more sophisticated in our environmental activity, and, 
and the environment continues to go downhill. So something new is, is, is imperative, and it's not just more of the same. Uh, more of the same is not going to succeed. We've had a lot more of the same uh, in the past. So I think we've got to ask some fundamental questions. Do we really need all this growth in an affluent country like ours? Um, have we uh, unleashed uh, too much power uh, into the corporate sector? Uh, is, are we really benefiting uh, in terms of satisfaction with our lives uh, from this runaway consumerism and these uh, hyperventilating uh, lifestyles? Uh, and uh, are we really uh, avoiding the real costs of the, uh, you know, the, the products that we do buy in the economy by artificially keeping prices low. And of course, as soon as you talk about prices and getting the prices right, you have to face the equity issue. And you have to face the issue that a lot of people don't have the money to pay high prices. And, uh, and, and that means that the environmental community have got to make common cause with those who are concerned about social issues. Uh, and because, uh, you know, as I say, the, the, the problem isn't high prices. The problem is not having enough money to pay them and having alternatives uh, available uh, that are environmentally benign and affordable. Uh, so there's a basic uh, confluence of interest here uh, between those who are concerned about social justice issues and those that are concerned about environmental issues. I know you've challenged the assumption that um, consuming more things makes people happier. Could you explain your challenge to that? Well, my, my challenge is, is, is not mine, really. It's based on the new field of uh, positive psychology, uh, which is looking uh, not just at abnormal behavior on the part of humans, where so much of psychology has been, but is looking at those things uh, that uh, and trying to learn those things that really improve people's sense of well-being, that improve people's uh, sense of happiness and satisfaction uh, with their lives. And, uh, and the results are amazingly uh, consistent. Uh, what they show over and over again uh, is that having more stuff, getting and spending, uh, doesn't really in any permanent way improve one's sense of, of well-being or happiness. And as the, as the psychologists say, you know, the materialism is toxic to happiness. Uh, the more materialistic people are in these measurements, the less happy they are. And so what does make people happy? Well, it turns out these same group of psychologists have looked at that and what does make people happy are warm personal relationships, uh, real intimate interactions among friends and family and, and, uh, and also uh, giving rather than getting. A tremendous uh, satisfaction derived. And uh, so, the, and yet these are the very things that we are so consistently deprived of. Uh, the work hours in the United States today are the highest in the, in the, among the rich countries. And uh, so there's a lot to be said for what 
you have in France today with longer vacations, shorter work hours, uh, and these are under attack in, in France today, the 35-hour week, for example, and the long vacations. But that really gives people time to do the things that make life worthwhile. I'm wondering, from your point of view, whether there's um, any hopeful signs, given that the environment is being so badly beaten, um, given the powerful forces that the Voices for Change face, is there reason to be optimistic, and are there signs of hope? Well, I think we have to look for them, and we have to stay stay hopeful. Uh, just consider the alternative. Uh, it's much worse. Things could get much worse. And, uh, well, what are some signs? I see uh, a lot of young people changing, uh, looking to more towards uh, taking these issues more seriously. Uh, I see it in, in religious organizations today. Um, I think the, uh, if you poll the public, uh, you, have, you get results that of like 80% of the public uh, thinks our society is too materialistic and would like to have more time to spend with their family and their friends and uh, get away from uh, shop till you drop. Uh, so I think there, you know, there are signs of, uh, of change. Uh, I think we, uh, we can take a lot of uh, hope in the, in the way that our political process was revitalized in the context of our recent presidential election. Uh, we'll need a new politics to, to deal uh, with these issues. And in a perverse way, I think we can be sort of hopeful that uh, people are intelligent enough to see the emerging uh, crises and to uh, be repelled by some of the social statistics that, uh, that are developing in our country. The enormous disparities in, in income, uh, swelling jails, uh, failing schools, uh, problems of... Uh, of malnutrition and obesity, uh, uh, diabetes uh, problems, host of uh, of issues that uh, uh, that you know that in addition to environmental issues that that I think people are you know are becoming motivational, uh, and uh, so you know one one has to be hopeful that that it, you know that understanding these issues and their links uh, and uh, that will lead to the emergence of a of a unified uh, political movement in our country for change. We've got to get out of these silos where each of our sets of concerns and each of our communities is basically talking to itself and trying to deal with the issues uh, just uh, itself. We're all in the same boat. And this is the bottom line, I think, in, in many ways on, on my thinking, which is that you know, this, uh, this system that we work in the system of political economy uh, cares fundamentally about uh, growth and production and reinvesting profits and growing more. And it doesn't really care. Uh, you know, it, re it cares about people and society and environment only to the extent that it's made to do so. And it's up to us as uh, citizens uh, to inject values of fairness and justice and sustainability and common sense uh, into the system. And, and that's why we're all in the same boat, because right now we're all more or less losing in these efforts, 
because our politics are too enfeebled. And if we could come together across a broad front of groups that are trying to inject these values of sustainability and justice and common sense into the into this uh, economic and political system. If we could come together, we might just have enough power to do it. Well, I appreciate you ending on a note of hope like that. And I'm very grateful for uh, you joining us today and even more so for being a real hero in the, the area of environmental change. So, so thank you so much for being our guest. Well, thank you, Kelly. So our guest today was James Gustav Speth, Dean of the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies and author of a number of books on the important issue of the environment, including The Bridged at the Edge of the World. Um, please visit our Rudd Center website at www.yalerudcenter to see a variety of resources, to get access if you're interested to a free monthly email newsletter that we send out on food and nutrition issues, and of course to see a list of the other guests that we've recorded podcasts with. Thank you.